African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Thank you for joining us right here on uh, uh, Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Uh, thank you for joining us on our shortwave service on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on DSTV Channel 802 on www.channelafrica.co.za where you can uh, stream us live. Uh, thank you. It seems like uh, we uh, keep coming back to the issue of uh, the International Criminal Court. Uh, we back at it once again. Uh, it was certain yesterday at the end of the African National Congress's National Policy Conference that the ruling party of South Africa seems to be determined to forge on with its decision to withdraw from the Rome Statute. This announcement, uh, which was highlighted even in our news bulletin, was announced yesterday by the ANC, which is a day before the International Criminal Court will decide whether South Africa violated their rules by failing to arrest Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir in February. February this year, the High Court in Pretoria already ruled that the government's decision was unconstitutional and invalid. Now, we're going to start this conversation with Ms. Kajal Ramtajan Keo, who is uh, the Executive Director of the Southern African uh, Litigation Center. Uh, thank you, Kajal, for giving us your time. Hi there. Now, look, the latest developments are really uh, coming from uh, the... Um, African National Congress's National Policy Conference. And uh, as we heard from our own bulletin here at Channel Africa, from the sidelines, we heard South Africa's ruling ANC's International Relations Chairperson Edna Mulea saying it would be unfortunate if the International Criminal Court were to rule against the government in the case involving uh, Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. She says that uh, with a consensus at the conference that they still will uh, uh, forge on with this decision to withdraw from the uh, Rome Statute. And uh, as I mentioned, this is also puzzling because this decision being made by the African National Congress comes in the midst of the Pretoria um, High Court decision, deeming that decision unconstitutional and invalid. So many things happening when it comes uh, to this particular issue, Kajal. Yes, um, certainly. Um, I, I note government government statement about um, uh, the finding and whether that will be positive or negative. But it is nearly certain that the pretrial chamber of the ICC will find that South Africa failed to cooperate with the ICC in its failure to arrest President Al-Bashir when he attended the African Union summit in South Africa in June of 2015. Um, this finding is nearly certain. What is not certain? is what kind of sanction will be imposed on South Africa, if any. Um, the enforcement mechanism which is available to the pretrial chamber is a referral either to the assembly, um, <clears throat> to, the, to the ASP, so that's the Assembly of State Parties to the Rome Statute, or to the United Nations Security Council. So there may or may not be such a referral. 
and um, I guess South Africa would be concerned in the event that they are found to have they are found to have not complied with the ICC. But um, in view of the results and the decisions coming out of the ANC policy conference that South Africa is still firmly on track to withdraw from the Rome Statute, I can't see how this will make a huge impact on South Africa and its foreign policy and its relationship with the ICC. Well, I, I want to look at that because how that kind of forging on is it possible, even despite the High Court in Pretoria ruling that the government's initial decision not to arrest uh, Omar al-Bashir, is that going not going to be them stepping over that uh, uh, decision that was already made by the High Court, uh, uh, Kajal? Initially, when South Africa attempted to withdraw from the Rome Statute, um, they forwarded a decision made by the executive to the United Nations Secretary-General this was not procedurally correct. What they should have done is having, is having taken a decision by Parliament of South Africa, and Parliament was to have transmitted such a decision to the United Nations Secretary-General. If South Africa does indeed decide to forge ahead with this withdrawal, and if they follow the correct procedures to withdraw from the ICC, they can still do this, notwithstanding the result, the decision of the High Court in Pretoria. I want to also look at uh, just uh, the consequences of uh, uh, that particular decision, whether it goes one way or the other way. What are the consequences that we could actually see unfold, whether it's it was seen as legal or not legal? What would the ramifications of today's ICC's ruling actually mean uh, for South Africa on an international security level? Yes, well... Um if, if, in fact, South Africa is found to have not complied with the request by the ICC and they, there is, in fact, a referral either to the Assembly of State Parties or to the United Nations Security Council, it would be up to those bodies to find an appropriate sanction um, or remedy against South Africa for this non-cooperation. Mm. However, we've seen in non-cooperation situations of other countries like Uganda and Kenya that these parties, these bodies, the Assembly of State Parties and the Security Council have not taken any kind of serious measures to get steps to account for their failures to cooperate with the ICC. So, um, you know, this decision is very important in terms of South Africa and in terms of countries cooperating in the future, but there isn't really any kind of penalty which we have seen imposed on other countries in exactly the same situation which we can foresee for South Africa. Well, staying with you, Kajal, because I know we've got a few minutes left with you. We'll move on to looking at other African uh, contexts and we'll bring in the Human Rights Watcher when we let you go. What's interesting for me, Kajal, is the fact that uh, there is a big question, even after that answer that you gave me in terms of the the weight of the penalties that countries receive uh, from the ICC, of the relevance of the International Criminal Court and its ability to hold countries accountable if they actually deter from the Roman uh, statute or don't follow uh, the rules within the Roman statute. It comes back to that question of relevance and is the ICC maintaining its prowess as that uh, a body that is supposed to look at these uh, big crimes uh, on the African continent and abroad because it's been questioned in terms of also its objectivity. 
Right. I mean, the ICC is an international body that is meant to look at war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide in particular. The ICC does not have its own enforcement mechanism, so it doesn't have a police force that can go off and arrest people who have been indicted by, by the ICC. It relies on state parties to assist it to enforce any arrest warrants which it issues. South Africa was in such a position and failed in its obligation to cooperate, even though when it signed up to the Rome Statute, it agreed that it will cooperate. So in terms of enforcement, the ICC is relatively weak. State parties to cooperate with it. And in terms of the enforcement mechanism, once it has made the referral to the ASP or the Security Council, it is then up to those bodies to find an appropriate sanction against these countries. So in terms of enforcement mm -hmm. mechanisms available to the ICC, there's, the, the ICC is actually in a weak position. That does not necessarily mean that the ICC is not relevant or that the ICC mm. and its position is not useful. Those are two separate issues. Um, within the African context, there are very few mechanisms and, in fact, no mechanisms to hold countries to account for these particular crimes. There is an African court which does not have a criminal jurisdiction, so it cannot try countries for crime, war crimes and crimes against humanity. So the ICC currently remains the only tribunal which is able to deal with these issues unless countries like South Africa take it upon themselves to try these crimes domestically. There is no other avenue for victims of these serious and heinous crimes to seek justice. Now let's look at the technicality of the uh, uh, Sudan situation because uh, the argument from the South African uh, uh, part and the South African government was the fact that they couldn't arrest uh, uh, the Sudan president uh, uh, the, because of the fact that Sudan is not a member of the ICC. Uh, but uh, there was an argument that the court has jurisdiction uh, with even with Sudan because of a 2005 UN Security Council resolution that referred some of the conflicts that took place in Sudan uh, took them to uh, the Hague Court. So tell us a little bit about the technicality when it comes to Sudan and its relationship with the International Criminal Court because there's still a lot of conversations taking place around the technicality. Right. Sudan is certainly not a member of the ICC, but that is no bar to have um, an individual who is Sudanese, including the head of state, arrested for a war crime or crime which is within the ambit of the ICC. Um, South Africa raised the issue of diplomatic immunity, and it continues to pursue this issue, even though domestically all th um, the High Court and the Supreme Court both held that sitting presidents do not have um, this head of state immunity, and therefore there was no bar on South Africa to arresting this individual. Um, there was also um, a decision made by the African Union with, for its directing its members to not cooperate with the ICC in terms of its arrest of Omar al-Bashir. Um, and what the ICC has said about this is that since the United Nations Security Council had effectively lifted the immunity of President al-Bashir, a state party to the Rome Statute could mm -hmm. not invoke any other decision, including that of the African Union, to provide for any other obligations to the country. So essentially, in the absence of any immunity, 
Africa was obliged and there was no barrier to the arrest of President Bashir. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then I'm going to come back to you and we'll wrap it up with you, uh, Kajal. That's Kajal Ramtajan Keo, who is the Executive uh, Director of the Southern Africa uh, Litigation Center. And then we'll move on and uh, hopefully we'll get Human Rights Watch as well to join us on this uh, conversation. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this conversation? Uh, give us your thoughts. Uh, remember, uh, we are on uh, Twitter at Channel Africa One or at African Dialogue, or you can uh, give us uh, your thoughts on our email address info at channelafrica.org it's almost 20 minutes past 11 o'clock I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to wrap it up uh, with Kajal and then uh, we'll uh, move on to our other guests This is Channel Africa South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, we're really at uh, the fresh stages uh, this uh, morning uh, today, looking at the ICC to rule on South Africa's failure to arrest Bashir. That decision hasn't happened yet, so we can't really come to a conclusion to letting you know what the real consequences of that is. But let me wrap it up with you, Kajal, before I move on to Louis March, who is a HRW Africa researcher. Uh, Kajal, I want to ask you a frank question. The ANC's decision to decide that they want to remove themselves from the Rome Statute. From your personal views and your personal perspective, is it a good decision or do you think that we should be wary of making such a drastic um, uh, decision to uh, remove ourselves from the international criminal court's processes? We're very wary of drawing itself from the International Criminal Court. We don't have a functioning regional court. The SADC tribunal was disbanded years ago. If we cannot access the ICC and the African Court has no criminal jurisdiction, this would mean that if, in fact, South Africa needed to to adjudicate on crimes of crimes against humanity and war crimes, we would have no avenues except domestically, and if domestic possible, we mean there would be no avenue for access to justice for both South African citizens and um, Africans within the region. Mm. So um, countries who are not members, like Zimbabwe, members of the ICC, um, we, we are currently still able to assist victims in those countries using the situation of universal jurisdiction to bring those cases in South Africa. So there is still some means of access to justice. If, however, South Africa removes itself from the jurisdiction of the ICC, 
we would lose access to justice, not only for South Africans, but for Africans in neighboring countries as well. Well, thank you so much, Kajar, for giving us your insights there. That's Ms. Kajar Ramtajan Keo, who's the Executive Director of the Southern Africa Litigation Center. Now, joining us on our program now as we let Kajal uh, go is uh, uh, we have Louis Mudge, who's uh, an Africa researcher at the Human Rights Watch. In connection, because we can't really speak about the International Criminal Court without looking at it from a, a regional perspective, a continental perspective, and the Central African Republic has come into the center when it comes to the uh, Human Rights Watch. They've released their latest uh, report titled Central African Republic Civilians Targeted in War, which looks at uh, really armed groups in the Central African Republic that have killed civilians with uh, with wholesale impunity, spurring more violence in the war-torn country. Now, this is a 92-page report that looks at war crimes committed in three uh, central provinces since late 2000. 14, including more than 560 civilian deaths and the destruction of more than 4,200 homes, according to Human Rights Watch. Now, these crimes fall under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court or ICC and the Special Criminal Court. Let me bring in Lewis. Lewis, tell us a little bit about these particular crimes. Why now is this particular report coming out? I mean, these are uh, atrocities that took place uh, uh, from um, 2014. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, listen, we decided to put this report out now because there's been real advancements in this court that you were just alluding to earlier called the Special Criminal Court. Um, as we all know, and, and as South Africans know especially, uh, violence has really been peaking in the Central African Republic since 2013. Mm. I'm sure South African listeners remember the Battle of Bongi in which, sure. which many South African troops actually died. Um, and, and the ICC, as you said, um, um, did open investigations in September 2014 into potential war crimes and crimes against humanity. Now, I'm sure you've talked about this in your show, but the ICC is incredibly limited in its ability to uh, go after a large number of perpetrators. Uh, these cases take a long time. And justice is going to be delivered um, eventually in a European capital very, very far away from Bangui. Um, we put this report out to really highlight um, on an international level that there's this other mechanism in the Central African Republic. And we think this could be viewed as a template for a way forward in other post-conflict African uh, contexts. The Special Criminal Court is made up of both international and national judges and prosecutors, and it has international support from both donors and partners to the Central African Republic, but also from the UN. I think what's most important about this hybrid court to point out is that it's written into national legislation. Uh, the, The transitional government, after the violence in the Central African Republic, recognized that they have the need for this national court with international assistance. So we're looking at something that really could be a way forward. This is not a special chambers. This is not a special tribunal to try one individual or one period. Uh, This is to go all the way back to 2003 and to look at the most serious human rights abuses, war crimes, and possibly crimes against humanity that have been committed. And what we wanted to do, the, the, the international prosecutor was named in February. What we wanted to do with our report was to basically give the international prosecutor what our opinion is for some first leads, some first leads for the investigators uh, to follow because very egregious crimes have been committed, in our opinion, uh, since 2014. 
Lewis, let's uh, look at uh, some of uh, the cases that you highlight uh, in uh, this particular report because you even cite uh, uh, attacks even taking place in 2017 still. Yes, yes. We wanted to put this report out and remind people that this is not historic. Uh, Violence in the Central African Republic is still, while it's not on the international headlines anymore, it's still at an unacceptable level. And when I say now, I mean literally today. Um, Some of your listeners might remember um, there was a Ugandan and American force in the southeast of the Central African Republic to trash the Lord's Resistance Army, and they've been pulled out, so they're gone. There's only a few Ugandans left in Ogo. And what we've seen, which, is very, which has been very predictable, and Human Rights Watch and, and a host of other organizations and international bodies predicted this, we've seen the violence move into that vacuum. Um, that they've created with their departure. So we're actually seeing towns in South Alaskan Republic that before, up until the Americans and the Ugandans arriving, so that's mid-2000s, hadn't seen real violence. And now they are. We're looking at 15 to 20,000 displaced people in a town called Zemio in the last few days uh, with up to dozens killed. So um, the violence is ongoing. We're talking about a country that despite the fact that they had a a transition in 2016 to a legitimate government, uh, two-thirds of the territory is either controlled or has some degree of occupation by armed groups. So it's still a very precarious situation. Now, I want to come back to in terms of dealing with these particular issues from a legal perspective with you, Lewis, because this is what also the report highlights, the capacity of the ICC and also the importance of also uh, the uh, special criminal court itself. When it comes to crimes like this, especially with the Central African Republic, how far are we? Look, I don't think we're that far away. As I said, the court is making real progress this year. Uh, They actually swore in national judges last week. Um, And I think this court could start investigations in 2018 with a view to try to bring some people to trial in the late 2018. I have to highlight that this is a context in which many people who might be uh, after by the uh, prosecutor for the special criminal court have already been arrested. There's a UNTC mission in the Central African Republic, and under something that's known as urgent temporary measures, um, with with collaboration with the national government, they've already arrested some key individuals. So we're not talking about something that's theoretical. We're not talking about something that's abstract. Um, there are already some, in our opinion, bad guys. Uh, who are already in jail, and once the investigations happen, uh, these individuals can be tried. I think what's important to highlight about the court, I just want to make this point, is that this isn't a silver bullet. I already said there's a lot of problems so, so. in the car, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. you know, territory covered. Well, what we've seen, you know, I, I arrived in Central African Republic just a few days after the Battle of Bongi, which is South African part, um, in, in March of 2013, and what mm-hmm. we've seen is that impunity linked to these cycles of violence. These warlords and these armed group commanders, they're committing these atrocities because they know they can get away with it. And I've spoken to them, and we quote them through the report. I mean, I've spoken with some of these individuals a dozen times, and they're afraid of justice. They're afraid of being held accountable for what they've done. So obviously you're not going to get every single individual who's been a commander of an armed group, but what you will be able to do is, by prosecuting some of them, send a message to the others.
Well, I want to come to this question of the importance of the International Criminal Court, uh, maybe not even using the word importance because that's not what everyone is questioning, but the relevance of the International Criminal Court. Because in South Africa, we had a conference with our ruling party, the African National Congress, Lewis, and they are insisting that as a party, in terms of their policy, they will still push to withdraw themselves from the uh, Roman statutes, you know. And we're starting to see that through in terms of membership and within the International Criminal Court. And I asked another expert earlier on, uh, Kajar Ramtajankeo from the Southern Africa Litigation Center, around how important the International Criminal Court is in terms of its relevance on the African continent. I think, I think the Central African Republic is a very critical case study for individuals in the ANC to look at. The International Criminal Court is, is vital to the continent, and the Central African Republic is a great example why. One of the successes, the recent successes of the ICC in an African context has been in the Central African Republic. Just a year ago, Jean-Pierre Bemba, this is a Congolese uh, national uh, who had a militia who committed serious, serious war crimes in Central African Republic in 2002 and 2003. He was convicted. Um, Central Africans know the relevance of the ICC because they've seen it firsthand. There are people who are affected by Bemba's militia, women who were raped, houses burned down, uh, people killed. And those people who are affected have seen this justice. They know that Bemba has been convicted and is in jail uh, with a lengthy sentence. And I think that's a very strong message. Now, my one criticism of the ICC, um, one of a couple, is that, it, A, it takes a very long time. So in Bangui, when this, when this verdict came out last year, some people were saying, gosh, it took a really, really long time to get us this degree of justice. And the second issue is that I do think there's an argument to be made that we need to figure out ways to render justice closer to home. I spoke to a lot of people who were affected by Bemba's militia who are very, very happy that Bemba's in jail uh, in Europe and very happy that he's been convicted. And for them, it sent a very strong moral message and also a real message to the future uh, uh, individuals who might want to create a militia and do the same type of thing. Well, thank you, Lewis, uh, for giving us your time. That's a uh, Lewis Mudge there, uh, giving us insights there from uh, uh, the latest report, Central African Republic uh, uh, issues looking at civilians uh, uh, targeted in war. The report is a 92-page report, Killing Without Consequence, War Crimes, Crimes Against Humanity. It also cites the importance of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and the Special Criminal Court. I'm going to take a quick break. I know he's been waiting for a while but it's good that he's been waiting because he's been listening uh, to what we've been talking about there. Uh, that is uh, Dumile Mateza, who's an SABC journalist, who's been looking at the issue of the International uh, Criminal Court for a long time. We're going to have a, a conversation with him about what he's observed as a journalist looking at this particular story. That's been a continuous one. We've been addressing it a lot here at uh, African Dialogue. We've been constantly speaking about the International Criminal Court. We'll speak to him after the uh, quick break. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605 one seven double one channel africa giving you the african perspective
Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Thank you for joining us on DSTV on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. Don't forget that you can also stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. We also have that mobile app, a very much a cool app. You can just go to your Google Play app and you can download Channel Africa and listen to us on your mobile phone. It's not much if you have Wi-Fi and you find yourself having access to the internet. We've got Dumila Mateza right now to give us his views on his long coverage of the International Criminal Court. Mr. Dumila Mateza, thank you for giving us your your time and uh, giving us your views on on this matter of the International Criminal Court. Where we find ourselves right now in terms of South Africa, especially with the ruling party, uh, the African National Congress, saying blatantly yesterday and unapologetically saying that they will forge on with the decision to withdraw from this Rome statute. What are your views? You've been following the story for a while with these particular latest developments. Well, I'm rather concerned by the stance taken by South Africa. If you remember when South Africa got, uh, became a democracy in 1994, President Nelson Mandela said it very clearly that South Africa's foreign policy will be driven by human rights culture. In other words, the human rights became one of the pillars of South Africa's foreign policy since the country's advent to democracy in 1994. Therefore, I, I, the, the other thing one should put into, into perspective when you discuss this issue is the issue of the rule of law in South Africa. Is South Africa really committed to a rule of law? Or is the question I keep on asking every time, mm. and that question is, uh, do we understand what do we really mean when we talk about a constitutional democracy? And these questions are slam bang in the middle of this whole argument of us wanting to pull out of the uh, ICC, despite the fact that we were the champions, one of the champions of the ICC in 1998, when we were one of the first countries to sign the Rome Statutes, and then we uh, actually domesticated the Rome Statute in South Africa by creating a law, the Rome Statute Law of mm. 2002 in South Africa. Therefore, mm. uh, it, it really concerns me that we are moving away from what we what we profess to be doing. That is following what in whatever we do, we'll follow mm-hmm. the rule of law. Um, Mr. Mateza, you know what? You've been a journalist before I was even walked into a newsroom when I was a student. And and most of the time when you move on into South African politics or even the South African social context, it seems like we suffer from uh, uh, forgetfulness in in terms of the reasons why we enter into statutes, makes agreements, partner up with certain countries in, in, in the international context. Let's go back to 1994 itself. Mm. The feeling around why we actually became a member of the Rome Statute. Because I think that's something that we have disremembered and it's something that we have actually forgotten and now claim a new narrative because of this forgetfulness. Can you take us back? Well, yes, I think South Africa, it was left to South Africa by the international community to help fight impunity in the continent. And South Africa had to deal with a number of issues. Uh, remember in the Democratic Republic of the Congo when President Nelson Mandela met both uh, President Mobutu Sesseko and uh, Jean Kabila in, uh, in, a, in a ship, in a South African ship somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean where they discussed the issue of the Democratic Republic of South Africa. At the same time, there was the flare-ups in 1992-93 
in Burundi and Rwanda, and South Africa played a key role there, especially in the courts in Tanzania. I, don't, I can't, just can't remember what the courts were called. One of South Africa's foremost judge, Judge Pillay, was one of the judges who acted, who, were, who acted in that court. This was a big job for South Africa. Therefore, South Africa was looking at the international community, taking a big slice of this job of looking after these kind of flare-ups in Africa, especially impunity among leaders of Africa. And that is why South Africa was at the forefront of pushing for the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And, and let's just uh, wrap it up, because we're left with a few minutes, uh, uh, Mr. Mateza, in, in, in the fact that uh, in terms of uh, looking at our relationship uh, when it comes uh, to this issue of uh, international security and our status right now, especially with this insistence, despite uh, the high court in Pretoria ruling that the government's decision was unconstitutional and invalid not to arrest uh, Sudanese uh, President uh, Omar al-Bashir, the question now is, where do you think that we could stand if the ruling party consists, uh, consistently insists with this uh, withdrawal? It's not up to the ruling party really to withdraw, from, to, to take a resolution to withdraw from the Rome Statute. It is a parliamentary process that needs to take place. And that is why the court in Pretoria ruled against the government, because if there is an act of parliament, it means the resolution must go to parliament. It must be parliament that repeals the act, the, the Rome Statute Act uh, in, of International Criminal Court Act of 2002. It should not be the party. It doesn't matter what the party believes should happen, but at the end of the day, it is Parliament that must unravel or repeal that act in order for it to be uh, to, to, to be uh, to be taken forward to the ICC to withdrawal to, to, from the ICC. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Jumila Mateza, for giving us your time right here on Channel Africa. I'm sure we'll have to follow this up with you and get some of your views when we see things unfold, especially after the judgment today from the ICC looking into whether it was legal uh, for South Africa not to arrest the Sudanese president. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That is Jumila Mateza. They're giving us his insights. He's been following the story, as you've heard, uh, since the new dispensation of South Africa. Uh, post-apartheid in 1994. He's been following uh, South Africa's participation in international uh, criminal law issues and also when it comes to uh, security measures taken from a continental perspective. Before him, we spoke to Lewis Much, who is a Human Rights Watch Africa researcher, uh, looking at it from an African perspective, not only looking at South Africa uh, in terms of the relationship with uh, the International Criminal Court, but also the importance of the International Criminal Court from a continental perspective. And uh, Ms. Kajal Ramtajan Keo started the conversation with us. She's the Executive Director of the Southern Africa Litigation Center, giving us that legal perspective on today's decision, what it means for South Africa and uh, what it means also uh, for the International Criminal Court moving forward. Well, we're going to have some music. This one is a relevant one, African Convention, music by Miriam. And then after that, we'll get our uh, economics news and then we'll get our sports.
Bye.